0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Justin Thaler, associate professor at Georgetown and author of Proofs, Arguments, and Zero Knowledge. We chat about his academic background and what led him to working on interactive proofs and then on ZK-SNARKs. We then look at the book, Proofs, Arguments, and Zero Knowledge, how it came to be, the zk hacks study group that formed around it, and how he's been developing this learning resource iteratively with a community. We discuss his earlier work on Spartan, how this influenced his thinking about SNARKs, his work on the security of different roll-ups built with SNARKs and STARKs, and more. I hope you enjoy. And also be sure to join his upcoming study group if you want to follow along with his next cohort going through his book all about zero-knowledge proofs. You can find this over on the zk Hack Discord. We've added the link to that in the show notes. I also want to quickly let you know about the upcoming ZK Summit 9. The event is happening on April 4th in Lisbon. Join us for our ninth edition. There you'll find all the latest research and the most cutting-edge implementations of ZK Tech. It's invite-only, and the application to attend is now open. I've added this as well
1: in the show notes. Now Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsors. Pairings, Baloo, CQ, Plonk. Pluckup, Fluckup, Hyperplunk, BN254, BLS381, Fry, Deep Fry, Deepest Fry, FFT, NTT, FHE, Goldilocks, Univariate Sum Check, Multivariate Sum Check, Pasta Curves, Twiddle D, Twiddle Factors, Multiscalar Multiplication, Modular Multiplication, LDE, MLE, Gras 16, Marlin, Poseidon, Animoy, Rescue, Reinforced Concrete, Nova, Supernova, Bulletproofs, Halo 1, Halo 2, Halo 3, now again, but faster. Check out ingonyama.com to learn more about zero-knowledge hardware acceleration. You can find the link in our show notes. So thanks again, Ingonyama. Alio is a new Layer 1 blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a roll-up. If you're interested in building private applications, then check out Elio's programming language called Leo. Leo enables non cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to deploy decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, and more. Visit developer.alio.org to learn more. You can also participate in Alio's incentivized testnet 3 by downloading and running a Snark OS node. No sign up is necessary to participate. For questions, join their Discord at alio.org forward slash Discord. So thanks again, Alio. And now here's our episode.
0: Today, I'm here with Justin Thaler, who is an associate professor at Georgetown and is the author of the book Proofs, Arguments, and Zero Knowledge. Welcome to the show, Justin.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: Justin, I know you primarily through the ZK Hack Discord. There is a study group there called the Thaler Book Club. And as far as I can see, there's a group of people meeting often to discuss the book you wrote. This has been going on for a while. I'm very excited to actually get a chance to speak with you and find out more about generally your work and also talk about that. Um, We will get more into that study group soon, but I think as a starting point, I'd love to start off with learning a little bit about what got you interested in zero knowledge tech, in this kind of cryptography.
2: Yeah. So right when I started my PhD, which I guess would have been in 2009, I was already interested in like in, in streaming algorithms. So these are algorithms for processing like really massive data sets where you don't even want to store the whole data set because there's so much data. Um, and kind of through an accident but also because i just thought these things called interactive proofs were really cool i had encountered them in a in a complexity theory class i um started studying sort of the intersection of the two topics so there had just been some really recent work um kind of looking at basically what happens uh in an interactive proof if the the data uh being processed is so big that the verifier you want to be a streaming algorithm so not even to like store the the input to the computation so i started looking at at that topic and that sort of led, uh, you know, it's, it's a really cool topic, never really on its own, I think, made like a big impact in practice. Uh, but that kind of led me just to looking at interactive proofs in general, forget about the streaming verifier. And also around that time, uh, there was a really, really important result called the GKR protocol, um, short for Goldwasser, klein Rothblum, just a really powerful interactive proof. Once I, I heard about that protocol, uh, which actually came from a reviewer of a, one of our streaming papers, I uh, was like, hey, you should look at this. It you know, seems really general and powerful, might be useful to you. Um, I sat down to try to implement it, thinking it would just be awful, right? Because the, the prover in that protocol runs um, in like cubic time um, in the size of the computation being outsourced. So something totally, totally impractical. But it turned out that, like, by looking at these kind of very simple toy problems that the streaming people care about, um, I had just kind of understood the techniques a good amount. Um, So when I sat down to implement the GKRA protocol, I I realized, like, you can actually make the prover run in, you know, forget about cubic time. It can run in, like, nearly linear time. And that kind of makes the jump from totally impractical to practical. Um, So that was, like, my whole PhD was kind of trying to continue improving, um, especially on the prover time there. And it really didn't have anything to do with zero knowledge necessarily. Um, And then fast forward a number of years, maybe to like um, Mm 2016-ish, and there was this paper called vSQL, which sounds like it's about databases. uh, But really, like the key (laughs) contribution there has nothing to do with databases. So it kind of, it observes that you can kind of take these interactive proofs that I had, you know, spent my whole PhD thesis working on and combine them with uh, cryptography, so what we now p- call polynomial commitment schemes, and then you get a SNARK.
0: Interesting. Right?
2: So it turns out I, I had sort of been working on SNARKs without realizing it for a long time.
0: What actual field, this was a question as you're talking, I was like, you weren't in cryptography. Was it math? Like, what was the PhD department?
2: <laughs> yeah, so it was computer science, but okay. like my, um, I thought of myself, I still sort of do as, a, as an algorithms and complexity theorist. And I've really picked up cryptography just as needed, you know, um, over time, which is which is one reason I was eager to do things that ultimately turned into this this book, you know, proofs, arguments, cool. and zero knowledge. But to try to make it a little less painful for anyone else to with, you know, to pick up the cryptography that's needed in this line of work.
0: Yeah. Interesting. You're saying 2016. This is around the time that you started to discover what would become snarks. Was Snarks a thing? Did they already exist at that point? Like, were they well-known?
2: Yeah, yeah. So Snarks existed then. Um, they were well-known. But the fact that, like, basically the deployed Snarks at that point were really, I mean, I, I don't know when Zcash, like what year Zcash came out off the top of my head. It was around then. So yeah, essentially yeah. what what people were using was what we now recognize as Snarks from linear PCPs, which ultimately, you know, led to Growth 16 and very popular today. Yeah, So okay, so maybe this is something interesting to, to describe briefly. So the historical development of all these protocols are like, like first people introduced interactive proofs actually in the same paper that the notion of zero knowledge was introduced, which is just some like bizarre uh, miracle of um, ideas. But yeah, wow. people didn't actually use like interactive proofs for zero knowledge until much later, I guess, um, uh, in practice anyway. So it went interactive proofs, then multi-prover interactive proofs, then PCPs, than linear PCPs, okay. But in terms of actually deploying these things as snarks, it almost went in the reverse order, huh. um, with the first ones coming from linear PCPs. And that sounds bizarre, but it's it's not a complete coincidence because the reason people started studying linear PCPs was exactly that we didn't have practical snarks from regular PCPs. Got it. So you know, there's this great work of Vishay Kushilevitz and Ostrowski that kind of uh, started introducing these li- uh, linear PCPs with the explicit goal of kind of getting more practical snarks, um, and you know, did take some follow-up work after their paper to get to get it there. Yeah,
0: fascinating. In the last few years, when you talk about like the linear PCP to the regular PCP, do we use any other terms for that today?
2: Yeah, we don't have practical snarks today from PCPs, but okay. uh, rather kind of a mix of interactive proofs and pcps that people call iops
0: there you go okay that's what i was wondering because like that (laughs) the 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 terms you just used are slightly familiar but like i feel like we at least with this show when we when i started to dive into it like there you see the introduction of iops and that's sort of the direction that people were going okay
2: yeah yeah so i thought i always thought like from very early on because i was working on interactive proofs i was like you know you can always just remove the interaction with Fiat Shamir. So we should really, protocol designers should be using interaction as a resource that then the resource just t- sort of gets removed and you don't need it anymore. And uh at the same time, you know, other researchers were developing like the PCP approach. And I guess in the end, it, you know, it turns out like you need elements of both. Like everyone mm. was right. No one was wrong, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> okay. Tell me like how at this point, so you've, You've been, I think in our story, it's around 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what work are you doing then? What what kind of thing? Like I know the book, I mean, I'd be really curious to hear when the book writing starts because we, mm-hmm. by the time we did CK Hack 2021, the book existed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, tell me when that happens.
2: Yeah, so I guess those are two slightly different questions. So um, with the research, there are two things to say. So one is, uh, so I've been working on two things between... 2013, when I finished my PhD, which was all on interactive proofs, and 2016. So I, I was working, continuing to work on interactive proofs, um, and there was some work on implementing these things in hardware and, and stuff like that. So applications that don't require zero knowledge or blockchains or anything like that. And I had also done some work on multi-prover interactive proofs. I and mean, the idea there is, I don't know, you might have two computer chips Acting as the prover, but they were manufactured in some foundry you don't trust. But it's like a state of the art foundry, so they're very fast, but they're not trusted. And you might actually be able to like power down, you know, one of the chips so that the provers can't talk to each other, um, and therefore, like the, the idea that there are these two non communicating provers actually kind of makes sense in the in the real world. So that's that's kind of where I was in 2015, um, and then this VSQL paper came out: um, John Katz, Peng Zhang, uh, Babis, and some others. That kind of had the key insight. This was before, you know, while, you know, KATE, KZG commitments already existed, people didn't really appreciate this notion of a polynomial commitment scheme yet. Mm -hmm. But I know Babis had some early work on, you know, extending KZG commitments to multilinear polynomials and had like kind of exactly the right confluence of uh, knowledge to be like, hey, here's this key insight. Like you can just combine interactive proofs with these polynomial commitment schemes we already have and you can get a snark. With that key insight, you know, I realized, oh, we're, you know, we've all been working on SNARKs this whole time. Um, And uh, yeah, that's how from then on, you know, my, I started studying polynomial commitments in addition to just the interactive proofs and and multi-prover interactive proofs. Um, It turns out like the multi-prover interactive proofs we had... Design Like the second prover was literally just acting as a polynomial commitment scheme. So you can just cut out the second prover. Um, And that that sort of observation sort of led to this work called Spartan, which uh, maybe you've heard of as far as the book goes. um, So that kind of started uh, with a workshop in 2015, I guess, uh, in Barbados. There's a, a McGill runs runs workshops in cryptography there every year.
0: McGill, like Montreal McGill?
2: Mhm. That's yeah. my
0: alma mater. Cool. Oh, great. <laughs> Not in math, but yeah. <laughs> but why would they do it in Barbados? That's such a random. Oh, okay. It so cold this is the in story... Montreal in the winter? What is it?
2: <laughs> this is a story I've heard. Well, basically somebody do- uh, donated a property down there and uh-huh. that, I mean that's a short version. So, uh, you know, it's in this beautiful location. I think they actually wound up s- selling part of the property so there's just like beautiful luxury hotel right next to this like kind of spare sort of housing for the workshop participants, but it's just a wonderful environment. Everyone's kind of there and offline and sitting outside at a whiteboard for the there week. Um, so, yeah, I like threw together these notes for this like five day workshop and then, you know, kind of just left them for a couple years until I um, started at Georgetown and started teaching some classes and started, you know, built on the notes at some point, I, like, threw the notes online and um, didn't tell anyone about them because they were still kind of in embarrassing shape. And, you know, some people stumbled on them, and I got some good feedback. And then, uh, But where things really, like, people, I guess, dis- discovered them as, as useful was through ZK Hack, which I guess was um, a little over a year ago.
0: Ah, nice. It wasn't like you were presenting this as, like, finished work, like, this is my textbook, but rather this is a collection and almost a starting point.
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, And the area was just moving so fast by the time, um, you know, 2016 came around and um, I expanded the notes enough that I'd even think about putting them out in public. And even, so I guess recently I did formally publish the monograph in Foundations and Trends in Security and Privacy, but I, you know, still consider the thing to be, you know, quite rough and a living document, and we'll just keep, you know, maintaining it, and um, years from now, I hope to put out, you know, some second version or so. so it'll cool. just sort of gradually move into, yeah, as, as things develop, I hope.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that because I had spoken. So the person at ZK Hack one back in 2021, it was Alessandro Chiesa, I believe, in his intro presentation or one of—it was either Alessandro or one of his students, actually, who were presenting. And people were asking sort of like, what are great resources to start? He had mentioned your book. He had called it the Thaler book. I mean, we called it the Thaler book. We understood it Mm. as like a finished product. Um, But at the same time, I had actually spoken to Alessandro about the challenges of writing a textbook at this moment because there were and maybe still are a lot of kind of parts of this that are changing really quickly. And even like the common knowledge of 2017 on how to do this is quite different from the common knowledge of today, but not Mm. not progressively different. Like there may have been almost like backtracks or rethinks or revamps. Mm -hmm. And so how do you teach that? How do you write it down? How do you print it? Becomes kind of a hard question to answer. So yeah, like which parts would you say have been consistent? Like, do you think there's parts of what you put together that are like, yeah, these parts seem to be like standardizing and becoming quite firm? Or do you feel like all parts are kind of up for grabs to change?
2: (laughs) This is a little bit of a hard question to answer, right? Um, I, I think that the the general kind of organization and uh, presentation of, you know, like all, all snarks having an information theoretic component and a cryptographic component that looks a lot like a polynomial commitment scheme and you put them together and you get your, your you know, succinct argument and apply fiat Shamir. Um, I think that is pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's largely the details that, changing. And there's been, you know, so I've done a, a lot of kind of forcing uh, into the exposition, like the latest update. Um, and it, it hasn't felt that hard. Um, okay. You know, it's like, you know, I can go to a chapter and like just append to that chapter. Like here, there's there's more developments. The most recent sort of thing I added just uh, roughly when Nova came out, I guess, is a chapter on uh, recursive snark composition. That line of work started with halo maybe that's 2020
0: yeah the halo one
2: yeah um and then
0: wait wasn't it like halo one plonky then it was halo two i think uh these are similar right like there's a line between them there's like sort of progress there and now i mean a lot of teams are using halo two i know that they're like some of the decisions in that have started to like come into everybody's system
2: Yeah, and and a lot of the benefit of Halo 2 as a system, my understanding is, is not necessarily through support for recursion, but it's just a nice also sort of standalone SNARK as kind of, you know, the Planck polynomial IOP plus either like the Bulletproof's IPA polynomial commitment or the code base also supports KZG, which is just literally kind of Planck. Um, So I think you you roughly had the right um, trajectory there. Um, Yeah, so I'd say I guess the history for recursive SNARKs, at least, you know, as I'm aware of it, and sort of covered in the in the monograph, is you know you can go back at least as far as uh, the cycles of elliptic curves paper, scalable zero knowledge via cycles of elliptic curves, um, like that was studying snark composition, but like kind of f- what people quote full snark composition, where you take the whole snark verifier, uh, you kind of represent it as a circuit, and then the prover proves that it like you know knows a satisfying assignment to that circuit, yeah, so you know. Going all the way back to, that was like 2013 or something, you could have like a short chapter on like recursive composition to snarks, mm. um, you know, with, with an implementation out there. But then the Halo line of work sort of um, wound up, in a sense, I, I'll say getting snark composition without full snark composition, if uh, that's kind of an incomprehensible statement. But, you know, um yeah.
0: Are there moments though where you almost have like breaking changes where like some new paradigm comes in and you, it sort of means some of the previous research or like in a textbook context, it would be like something you've learned is now going to be thrown out a little bit. Like, oh, we've learned exactly how to, you know, optimize an R1CS mm-hmm. and now we're maybe going to use a very different kind of setup. I know that maybe is a bad example because I know people are still using it, but like, has there been any sort of like, lost work or work that's kind of going to be pushed aside?
2: Mm. Yeah, great question. I haven't really encountered that yet. I've been mostly able to handle things via, like, addition only, if you will. (laughs) Um, So, like, um, you know, uh, for a long time, I only discussed arithmetic circuits. Then I added in R1CS in, like, a very haphazard way where, like, in the chapter— Yeah, so, like, in the chapter on multi-prover interactive proofs, that's where I introduced R1 CS, which is like a weird place to put it in. But <laughs> and what happened there was um Spartan came out and you know was uh kind of extended like sort of the old the old MIPS I had been working on, for example, uh to handle R1 CS and like, oh now I better put in like the R1 C S presentation. And also by sort of generalizing, sometimes things get simpler when you when they actually become more general. And I think Spartan's a great case of that, where I think mm. describing the protocol is actually becomes, especially the making the prover linear time, it actually uh, is simpler when the protocol is general enough to handle R1CS. And then I've also added discussion at various places in the book of roughly what is, you know, these even newer uh, intermediate representations like planck arithmetization and uh, mm-hmm. air isn't necessarily newer, but um, air is another example. So I've, I've been handling everything by addition so far. I haven't, I don't think I've cut anything.
0: You just mentioned, I want to come back to this actually, but you yeah. are mentioning mm-hmm. Spartan. I don't know that we've covered it. I'm trying to Place where that is in sort of the uh, research steps. Like at mm-hmm. what point, what other kind of contemporary works were published around the same time that would maybe help me just time frame okay, wise?
2: Okay. Yeah. So Timeline Spartan is roughly contemporaneous with uh, Planck and Marlin.
0: Okay. So this is 2019, I guess. This is like the snark. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Spartan has like a 2020 timestamp on it, but, uh, okay. you know, as at some most tw- early version. End of version, 2019,
0: but- I think, was when yeah, these things are coming out. Yeah, roughly. Out. Okay.
2: That's roughly right, yeah. Yeah, so, so Planck and Marlin are both based on what I call constant round polynomial IOPs, okay, which is an information theoretic protocol that if you kind of combine with KZG polynomial commitments— Will get you um, like a, a snark of constant length, constant number of group elements, and a universal trusted setup, which was mm-hmm. like the main—that's the big you know, cell, mm-hmm. yeah—of Marlin, Marlin and Planck. and then Spartan, because it uses the sum check protocol. Unless you start bringing in snark composition, right? You will, you will not get proofs below logarithmic size, right? So it's never going to get down to constant. All of these works uh, have very nice technical insights uh, to ensure that they, they can handle like totally unstructured circuits.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they don't require like uniform circuits with you know re- uh, repeated structure, the same little computation repeated over and over again. Uh, that, that, that's not required for these protocols. Um, and they can do this with sort of a pre-processing phase wherein the prover runs in linear time or close to linear time. Um, and that that is actually quite complicated to achieve. Um, and and all three works sort of under the hood. They they have that in there.
0: Okay. Is Spartan also a universal? Does it need a universal trusted setup or have a universal trusted setup?
2: So it doesn't require um, any trusted setup at all. Oh, okay. So it's just uh, if if you use a transparent polynomial commitment scheme, it's just okay. it's just transparent. And the way I would put it is if you have a circuit or R1CS, whatever, with repeated structure, it also requires no pre-processing period. Um, if your circuit just is completely unstructured, like even writing down a description of the circuit takes, you know, like the description size is like the circuit size, just totally unstructured. Um, it can have like a transparent setup. So just like pre-processing. So no, no like trapdoor that needs to be discarded. Um, that's linear in the size of the circuit.
0: Mm. Was there any work that followed it, that sort of built on it?
2: Yeah, there's there are a bunch of things now. So examples include um, Quark's, Breakdown, Orion. Um, and basically, these are more or less just substituting different polynomial commitment schemes into Spartan to get different um, performance profiles.
0: Interesting. We were talking before this sort of like, we, we've, veered off into spartan but i kind of want to go back to the book i know you don't call it a book you call it a monoglyph is that what you say
2: monograph i don't know we can call it a book now yeah at this point (laughs) it's kind of a book now now. okay Okay.
0: i want to bring up a recent tweet because i wonder if this is one of those examples that i was trying to find where like in optimizing in some directions could you actually be undermining other sort of team's Strategies for optimization, mm-hmm. and so this—the tweet that I'm mentioning—is actually maybe you can help me explain this. It has to do with HyperPlonk and hardware acceleration. So tell mm-hmm. me a little bit the dilemma here.
2: Great. Okay, so um, HyperPlonk is a new um, some check based snark for, uh, I guess, what people call a Plonkish intermediate representation. Um, it's kind of a generalization of circuits that. Um, has a nice uh, combination of expressivity and now, you know, good backends for it, whether it's Planck or Hyperplanck. And whereas uh, Planck is not based on um, the SumCheck protocol, which is some, you know, like multi-round um, protocol, Hyperplanck is. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a nice blog post by Ingo Yama, um a company uh, focused on hardware, sort of, exploring issues uh like comparative issues in hardware uh, is not even necessarily you know hardware specific but just in implementations of the various protocols um so basically Plonk is a constant round protocol that you then apply fiat shamir to to make a non-interactive so you you get a you know snarks a non-interactive thing um yeah, Fiat Shamir, ultimately, well, it's it's only constant rounds. So uh, whereas uh, the sum check protocol is is logarithmically many rounds um, in the context of, you know, the size of the circuit or what have you. So the, the key issue kind of raised was maybe uh, there's kind of the prover cannot start working on round two until it knows what message it needs to send in round one. I see. So it was raising this as a potential bottleneck for when you apply Fiat Shamir to many round protocols instead of like one one or two round protocols, essentially?
0: So uh, it's basically like th- in the case of Planck plus Fiat Shamir, hardware acceleration is possible because it's very consistent. And the minute you use the sum check, it becomes less consistent. And therefore, the hardware acceleration efforts would somehow be lost. Or does it even like, does it undermine the performance if you try to optimize hardware?
2: I think the the question uh, is always what is the bottleneck in the prover implementation and if we're developing special purpose hardware to implement the prover you know you have to be very aware of you know bottlenecks in hardware implementations yeah. in particular right okay what well, one nice thing about some check based techniques i guess these are still the only techniques known that avoid ffts for the prover mm-hmm. anywhere the uh, ffts come up fast fourier transforms they come up for the prover in um, for multiple reasons. Uh, basically, what one can be, um, like, if you're using Fry as your polynomial commitment mm-hmm. scheme, the prover has to do FFTs to, like, evaluate a polynomial on many different points. Um, but also Planck, which doesn't necessarily use Fry as a polynomial commitment scheme, it uses KZG, FFTs come up there, too, because of dividing large, large polynomials. And if you use SumCheck instead... Uh, you can avoid those FFTs. So, so this Ooh. this blog post from Ingo Yama was specifically focused on FFTs as a possible bottleneck versus sum check as a possible bottleneck. Um, now, you know, asymptotically speaking, FFTs are super linear time. It's like n log n time, and and the sum check prover um, can be implemented in linear time. Um, so the question becomes like, well, what's the bottle? You know, what's actually worse is like n yeah. log n time in practice actually worse than, like, linear time, but you have, like, more rounds you're applying Fiat Shamir to. There was discussion about about that. And then there was additional discussion because a lot of the projects that are, especially if they're heavily focused on recursive SNARK composition and proof aggregation, they kind of never apply a monolithic SNARK to very big circuits, right? So they might, like, break a giant circuit up into many, many, many small circuits And then Um, do recursion
0: of them after the fact.
2: Exactly. And in that setting, you'll never apply an FFT to a vector that's particularly big. Hmm. So, so these teams sort of, you know, have this view, which I think is is quite reasonable. Although I, you know, I, there are counterpoints to be made, um, which uh, I did try to, you know, convey my own, you know, perspective of counterpoints, um, <laughs> which is, you know, FFTs really only become like a bottleneck when things get really big, and like maybe through recursion, we'll just never have to uh, <laughs> uh, apply them to really big things ever.
0: Mm. You're not working in hardware right now, are you?
2: Not not actively, yeah. yeah. Um, year, year, years ago, there was some work, which is something I mentioned on Twitter, where on hardware implementations of s- some check-based, uh, just actually interactive proofs. It was before, you know, they were used to make snarks. Through that work, I, kn- I know what the bottlenecks, you know, for the prover were in hardware through that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I feel like though this is, like, I'm due to do a hardware one.
2: It's a hot topic, yeah. It'd be great to to hear more, yeah.
0: And I know that there's a number of teams that have, actually push that forward. But one of the questions I've always had about this, and this kind of goes back, this this is, it's an interesting theme both through your tech, like creating educational material as well as investing in hardware acceleration where it's like, how standardized are the techniques? How decided is the industry as to which of these strategies are they going to focus on? And I know I do realize like there are trade-offs. So some use cases might be better suited for some of these things. But if you are investing in hardware, which starts to become like a pretty significant cost, are we as an industry or as a a field ready for that? Because, you know, once Mm -hmm. you start stamping these things out, like they're harder to adjust, I guess. Right.
2: I mean, yeah, I'm happy to, uh, you know, share my own personal thoughts, which are not necessarily, you know, that informed, yeah, um, sure. you know, at the hardware level. I'll do, which, I'll do a full which,
0: episode eventually, so we'll get some yeah, other people yes, to weigh into.
2: So for the prover anyway, um, like in every snark, like out there, you know, there's only a handful of, of bottlenecks typically, right? Which is um, either a multi-exponentiation, um, an FFT, Merkle hashing, or field operations that are not coming from an FFT. Okay, so which is the bottleneck uh, depends on, you know, which polynomial IOP you're using, which polynomial commitment scheme you're using, and how big is the circuit you're dealing mm-hmm. with. The fact that there's such a small handful of bottlenecks, like, sounds good. Like, let's just design hardware, like, to handle each of these things. Of and, yeah. But I do think there are still significant moving pieces in terms of, um, like, what what hash functions we're going to use to build these Merkle trees, mm. what, what fields we're going to work over, what cryptographic groups we're going to use. Um, and in order to build hardware for this stuff, presumably you have to fix a choice of that. So mm. I do worry that if um, these choices are still in flux, you know, as particularly with ASICs, right, which have uh, my understanding is it takes a while to build them and like, you know, things can shift under your feet as you're building them. Uh, that is my personal sort of high-level take on, on the space at the, at the moment.
0: Mm, interesting. Did you dive into hash functions in the book?
2: No. Um, so there is discussion um, in various places of snark-friendly hash functions. And I mean, but basically just saying, hey, like...
0: There's a black box. It, it exists. Yeah. Okay, okay.
2: Right. You know, there are yeah, hash yeah. functions that we believe are, you know, collision resistant or act like a random oracle and that are, you know, turn into smaller circuits than, um, you know, your standard off-the-shelf ones. Um, cool.
0: In what you're doing, do you have a focus on, this is actually just a general backstory. There's a question more on your backstory, but like, have you had a focus on security? Has that come up for you? Or do you feel like that's sort of a separate part of this ecosystem from what you're working on?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, so security is intrinsically connected to performance because that, you know, the tension between the two, I mean, they're like essentially always in tension to some degree. Mm. That tension, different projects might make different choices about where to where to be in that spectrum. Um, so I, I have started looking at uh, sort of security uh, more carefully, concrete security in particular. I got into this because I was preparing a, a survey talk on on rollups um, this summer. I was visiting A16Z. So I was, I was looking at what various projects are, are doing today, and it was a really interesting learning experience um, that kind of led me both to, there are some interesting questions there and also um, just important uh, conversations, I think, for the community to have. Um, mm. So I started trying to, uh, you know, bring these issues up into, into conversation. Um, so I can, I can elaborate on, on that a bit if you'd like.
0: Go for it. Yeah, tell me about that.
2: So, you know, there. I guess these issues today are particularly prominent in in snarks that use Fry. Like that's the deploy. those are the deployed snarks where this tension uh, between performance and security is particularly strong. Um, and so it's natural then that that's where you might see projects, you know, kind of choosing to be a little more aggressive on the performance side of things.
0: Ah. And when you say tension, do you mean like kind of they're on either side of a of a spectrum? Like, is it sort of you are going to get great performance, but less great security or vice versa? Is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, the, the simplest way of thinking about things is just there. there's a direct tension between verification costs and security level. Um, so uh, I'll elaborate a little bit on there's actually kind of a three-dimensional spectrum between like prover time and verification costs and security level. But um, roughly speaking, like the, the bigger the proof, the you know more bits of security you have, that is the um, sort of more computational effort should be required to kind of uh, produce a convincing proof of a false statement. And, you know, in in practice, you know, verification costs translate to gas costs, you know, if these things are deployed on Ethereum, say, you know, so like every blockchain node in the world has to like run the SNARK verifier. Um, So, you know, you can reduce those gas costs uh, by sort of getting more aggressive with the security and you know, there are ways to kind of push um verifier costs onto the prover, whether it's through recursion or something called the fry blowup factor is another way you could do it. Uh but basically if you kind of fix the, you know, how you're treating the prover, there, you know, it's the tension is directly between verification costs and and security. So when I when I kind of sat down to look at what the various projects were doing, there were two things that um I uh was a little bit surprised by. So what one is like not at all project specific, which is, it's just really hard to figure out what the you know, a lot of the projects are doing. Um, Just like documentation
0: and how clear they are with like open sourcing some of the stuff.
2: Yeah. Um, and you know, it also, this makes sense, like the focus on building things and, um, you know, as long as, you know, they're, they're, comfortable they're not going to get you know owned or something like maybe that's enough for today but yeah so you know it, it turns out like a lot of these things are kind of the specs are either academic papers or just the the code Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether a solidity contract or something. Um, and maybe that code is accompanied by like a short white paper that's short on details or something. And then with, with Fry-based SNARCs in particular, how secure they are is like not necessarily hard-coded into the code. It's kind of um, a parameter that's like passed to the smart contract or something. Mm-hmm. So that means you might have to actually go like on-chain to actually just see what is the security level. Um, so there is like a whole lot of of this I was discovering, and then a, another thing I, I discovered was just like talking to people in the ecosystem who like work on this stuff is uh, just not that many people are aware of what a lot of the projects are doing, um, and in some cases actually had like the you know were mistaken about what other Ooh. other projects were doing, and and just you know g- general like the security properties of Fry are like somewhat complicated to describe. Um, So you Mm -hmm. kind of put all this together. And I thought that there should be some discussion about that. And, you know, like the the way I thought going into this, you know, things were supposed to happen is, you know, these verifiers like they live on chain. Anyone can inspect them. And that's why we have confidence like we don't the whole point is like you don't want to have to trust anyone including like whoever wrote that smart contract, right? Yeah. So I th- I kind of thought that there it should be well known what these smart contracts are doing and like how secure are they? And it seemed basically just to not be. So I okay. thought it was important to have a discussion that what happened in the open.
0: Are you talking about a lot of these systems that are still sort of on testnet or they start like are they only partially rolled out? Could that mm-hmm. be one of the reasons why it's not as clear? Or would that be maybe something that the teams would, would say are the reasons?
2: Yeah, so uh, a lot of these fry-based projects um, are still in testnet, um, as my understanding. So like Plonky2, you know, Risk Zero, you, I know that you go to their website and, you know, there's like, you know, no guarantees yet that, yeah. you know, every, that things haven't been audited or whatever. Um, so Starkware is, is deployed. So that was one that I was, you know, kind of able to look on chain at. And they they have posted a whole bunch of materials in like a GitHub, which was very helpful and and things like that. But when I saw the security level um, that was being used in Starkware's deployed systems, um, I, di- I didn't feel it was high enough. So I mm-hmm. sort of tried to explain why why I felt that way, um, and more generally, just explain like what's happening because again, it's like complicated to just describe all the intricacies. They recently announced uh, on Twitter that they in the next uh, the next time they update the system, they'll move up from 80 bits to 96 bits of security, which I think is great. Yeah. So there was also some some discussion um, that I saw on Twitter uh, between Starkware and uh, Matt, Matt Green, who's a faculty mm. at Hopkins. Um, there was discussion about training wheels for the roll-ups. So mm. this is, I guess, th- there's a Vitalik blog post that describes kind of levels of training wheels. Um, and I think th- the upshot is that all of the, the roll-ups um, that are deployed today um are still on training wheels. Um, and what that essentially means is they're they're permissioned. Yeah. So only only the rollup provider or essentially can update the state of the system. Um, so may, maybe anyone can submit proofs, but the proofs basically don't do anything because only the rollup provider can update the state of the system. And you know there might be, you know, with Stark X, maybe there's um, you know, they they've moved one stage up into training wheels. Um, and I guess a point I wanted uh, that might be worth raising just the, the following. So if things are uh, permissioned, it might be more reasonable to have um, a security level whereby the basically proofs can be forged.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, my main concern is uh, in terms of raising this conversation is to make sure that the security level is high enough that either it's infeasible to forge proofs or at least it would be like more expensive than what it would cost to just attack the L1, mm-hmm. um, you know, to acquire like enough stake to just like attack Ethereum's proof of stake directly or something. Um, and I, I don't think 80 bits is is at that level, which is okay. why I was raising the, the issue. Um, and, and 80 bits, by the way, can mean multiple things. And so I've tried to explain exactly what it means in this context. Even with the permissioning, if the, if the rollup is really protected via permissioning, OK, I still think it's important that uh, proofs be unforgeable uh, for two reasons. OK, so so one is uh, maybe a slightly paranoid, but I think still worth worrying about, which is um, if if the rollup providers keys get compromised, then somebody can act as the rollup provider and advance the state of the system. And if the, the proofs are forgeable, then you know they can they can prove anything they want essentially. Mm. These keys must be hot because the roller providers are posting proofs multiple times a day or whatever. Right. So uh you know it, it's not maybe that likely a compromise, but like it, in centralized exchanges I guess, like, best practice is to make use of cold wallets, right, exactly because if something's hot, then you can't fully protect it from hacking, like, ever. So, um, I think even in permission settings, while the trending wheels are on, we still want these proofs to not be forgeable. Got it. Um, yeah, so one other comment I wanted to make is is just, like, since, like, especially since FTX, um, I think uh, roll-ups have been correctly... You know, kind of contrasting themselves, you know, as uh, to something like FTX as, as self custodial, mm. and if if the system is really protected by uh, permissioning, then. right? Like self is it you know that you you do yeah. have to trust the rollup provider not to uh, forge proofs, right? It's protected there. by the permissioning. So
0: that's interesting. Yeah. So here, I mean, in the original question, it was about security, and mm. what I'm hearing here is there's like the two forms. One is like. The actual proof creation security, when this is where you're saying like it could be forgeable versus the permission or permissionlessness, the idea of a decentralized, it's often sequencer, it's like the bridge, the thing that connects the roll up to the actual main chain. If that's permissioned, then that is also like a security, it's a centralizing force that could potentially be a security issue. Is that, is that correct?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's not the uh, centralization of the sequencer that's critical. I think that's important for um, censorship resistance. Okay. Um, you know, so the sequencer kind of decides like what transactions get proved. Mm. Um, and so if it just like refuses to include Anna's transactions, then you can't and being transact censored. on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this, this is about kind of centralization of proof submission, oh. um, which is so it's protecting the state of the rollup from attackers. There are two ways to that you could do that. Okay, so so one is um, to make the proofs unforgeable. So uh, nobody can, like, you know, act like, you know, Anna transferred her funds to me when she didn't. Mm -hmm. Or it can be protected by permissioning, which says, like, well, only uh, the rollup provider can submit proofs. And as long as the rollup provider isn't trying to steal from its own customers or something, like, it doesn't matter. And the training wheels mean it's permissioning.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's two kinds of permission. (laughs) There's permission sequencers, or like one uh, sequencer that's centralized, or the actual creation of the proofs plus that often like paired with a transaction i guess that's sort of what you're describing here or like the thing is aren't they usually like batches that are then there's a proof attached to a batch so like could someone actually exclude or like change the actual transaction in the batch i realize they all have different settings and maybe not all of them use this technique but yeah
2: yeah, so uh, I th- the, the proofs protect against somebody um, kind of putting a transaction in the batch that like never existed. Mm-hmm. You know, ba- basically you you prove you know like a, a digital signature from from Anna. So Anna must have really authorized this transaction. Yeah, so th- they're protecting against like fake transactions, which is like how you can steal money, right? You yeah, say yeah. someone. Um, Whereas uh, a separate concern is is censorship resistance, um, which is not fake transactions, but just like refusing to uh, put real transactions, you know, have them be processed.
0: I see. I see. So the FTX comparison then would be something like, I mean, these bodies still have seemingly like quite a lot of power. So to compare themselves as like the antithesis of FTX is maybe a step too far at this stage, right? Like they're not there yet.
2: There's a firm distinction, I think, between, like, 80 bits and, and 100 bits, right? The okay. distinction is uh, somewhere between that level, um, forging proofs really becomes truly infeasible, you know, with, like, current um, known attacks. Um, okay.
0: So, 96, this move that Starkware proposed, does that solve it?
2: So, okay, so here's my personal take on, like, what is correct security level, I guess, Um 96 bits of security, you know, um, the way fry based projects tend to be using that means there, there are certain conjectures. They're basically assuming known attacks on Fry are optimal. When they uh, and and you know, in order to succeed with probability close to one, you need to do like two to the 96 hash evaluations to find a convincing proof of a false statement. Yeah, so, so somewhere between like two to the 80 and and two to the hundred, um, really, that that number of hash evaluations like truly becomes um, infeasible today. I was doing. Um, so, so like the Bitcoin network, according to my calculations, which hopefully I didn't mess up, uh, does like two to the 80 hashes every hour or so today. Mm-hmm. So just to give you a sense um, of what might be feasible and what isn't. Um, now, they, they, you know, the, their hash function is not what's securing these fry-based NARCs today. But yeah, just with enough investment in ASICs or something, like we could do two to the 80 like every hour. You know, I mean, it's an insane investment in ASICs, but you get the idea. And so, so here, here's my take on, on security, right? Like the accepted cryptographic practice is really sh- 128 bits is, uh, you know, so like SHA-256. 256, mm-hmm. 256 means it's giving you 128 bits of security. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't think 100 bits is attackable, but, you know, like the someone could come up with a better attack or, you know, who, who knows. Um, so I, I do think when projects choose the 100-bit level, uh, I you know, I'm not worried that they're going to be attacked, you know, today, but uh, my personal take is they, they are still like not following standard cryptographic process uh, or, or like practice um, and, and sort of just signaling that performance is like a priority over, uh, over security, I mean, is my personal take. So the main reason I raised this discussion is um, to ensure that the security is high enough that it's uh, really you are inheriting the security of L1 um, by using the SNARK according to known attacks. But even at, like, 100 bits, I, I'm not worried about the known attacks, but, the, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, kind of long-term, it might just be, you know, healthier for the ecosystem to uh, kind of signal, um, like, a, a, a real focus on security rather than eking out, like, that last little bit of performance that you can eke out.
0: Hmm. It is tricky. When you're the builder of these things, they're definitely, like, you're you're the voice from the it should be the proof
1: <laughs> it should be more secure and
0: there's probably others who are like this thing's too slow make it fast right. it has to go faster yeah right. okay or cheaper yeah yeah, yeah so
2: hmm. yeah so i'm not i'm not out there building it so it's very easy for me to say this stuff but you know uh, i do i do find the messaging between like you know the performance is is great and and also like you know uh, we can always just get more GPUs um, mm-hmm. and push the the cost under the prover and like they're they're almost costless so don't worry about performance it's just like a little bit of a discordance with uh, yeah. you know then having the security level like a little bit aggressive um, so anyway there are lots of roles to be played to keep the ecosystem healthy so <laughs> I'm sure. happy to play one and the builders will play another and yeah <laughs>
0: it's funny I like Kobe and I actually just went on the epicenter podcast as guests I went to the other side that was fun. Um, but one of the questions that Frederica was asking us was about which of the rollups is best. Which of the ZK rollups is best? And like, we were like, oh, we don't know. And I'm curious now that you've done this research, would you have a preferred? Do you think there's one that is doing better?
2: No, I don't, I don't have strong feelings on this. Um, I think, um, you know, there's a lot to rollups besides just like the the snark being used a, a lot um, and uh, there's a lot of innovation happening on those like non-SNARK related aspects of of the roll-up um, so censorship resistance is like basically unrelated to you know, security of the snark and mm. the developers that are building on the L2, you know, like the community, all of these things are, are super, you know, probably even more important than how performative the snark is. And like, I have expertise in one like very, very narrow yeah, yeah, yeah. topic. Uh, yeah, so it's no, true. I don't have. Because
0: <laughs> there's like the tooling and the language and all of these things that would come along with it. That's cool. Yeah, when, yeah, when making that decision. So I just want to bring it back to the study group. There has been a Thaler Book Club study group that's run twice now. There was one that started, as mentioned, right during ZK Hack one which was 2021. And I could see that running. I mean, I wasn't in it. So for me, it's like I've been, you know, I see the chats. I know that there's meetings. But yeah, I I know a few people who are part of that. Gerzhta, for example, has like, we've done an interview about like how useful that first she she was part of the one that was like six people, the really small mm-hmm. first one. And I know when there was an announcement to do a second one, there was a lot of interest in that. Tell me about the experience. Like you, I guess at some point discovered that people were doing this study group all about your, your the work you had put together.
2: So yeah, what was that like? So I think Thor reached out to me and and told me um, about the study group pretty early on in the first one. So I think they basically just started over uh, when I once I joined. Um, And even the second one, uh, I think, you know, a a big crowd showed up for for the very beginning. And then it's it's kind of down to like the same kind of, you know, (laughs) six, seven person size again. Um,
0: But it's interesting who that six and seven person group is, because those people tend to go on to like, you know, work in the industry quite quickly. So it's it's a cool exercise, I think, in, in seeing who goes through it.
2: Yeah. And this is one you know, I kind of wrote the book. The The book was just like a series of brain dumps um, that kind of got improved over time. So it was kind of written for kind of for my myself or something. Um, yeah. So it's a certain level. And, um, yeah, I do think a, a lot of people, you know, start start reading it and are like, oh, I would benefit from, uh, you know, some less detailed um, reading first. And, yeah, so the, those that have have stuck with it. um I guess the fact that they've stuck with it means they've, they've felt it, it, it was a useful resource. Um, Mm. and, um, it is very detailed. So I, I would hope that then they'd be able to dive into building and so forth.
0: What did you get out of doing this? Like, why, why would you, cause you were at a lot of the sessions and what is it like to go through it with this group of people learning?
2: Yeah. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience. And I mean, I, I view, it's selfish for me because, um, it's just night and day how much uh, I think the presentation has improved by just getting like continuous feedback on like kind of what wasn't clear, what could use, what people are interested in, you know, kind of more detail on um, whether it was clear or not. Yeah, the book would just not be anywhere close to as as useful or um, sort of polished as it is today and still not very polished, um, without that. Um, <laughs> huh. and it's also just an enjoyable to interact with uh, a group of, of people who are, you know, this intelligent and just excited about the material. Um, it's really been a unique experience for me in that regard. So.
0: Do you think you might do another one? Cause I know you you're sort of getting to the end of this second one, as far as I can see.
2: No, I'll definitely definitely do it. Um, You know, I I definitely do at least one more. And, you know, unless I just get like way too busy for some reason, I'd be happy to literally just do this ad nauseum. Because, again, I view the book as a living document and it'll just kind of keep getting better, uh, I I hope. Yeah.
0: I do wonder if this is like the new way to learn. A lot of the people learning with you are... I mean, they're they're on a Discord server. There, some of them are anonymous, so it's like it really is. It's not like a class. It's there's no barrier. There's no like block. People can join or leave. But yes, it's it's really nice to see this happen, and it's what the Thaler Study Club has done. Actually, is inspire a number of other study clubs. We've been running one around the Whiteboard Series. We want to do a lot of these. There's, I mean, I know there's been talk of the Moon Math Manual. Maybe having a study group as well. Have you seen that, by mm-hmm. the way? Did you ever have a look at the Moon Math Manual?
2: Uh, I haven't, so I, I definitely should. Which maybe um, that's maybe that's exactly the thing to point people to um, as kind of a precursor.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you the question that so many people ask when they join, for example, the ZK Hack Discord or are, like first joining one of the events that we're doing. And that is, what should people know or do research on or read up on before they start to explore some of the ZK topics that you cover?
2: I think that uh, the only technical topics um, that are really required uh, some comfort um, with is, is finite fields and elliptic curve groups. And with elliptic curve groups, actually, fairly recently, based on the latest feedback, I did try to put some self-contained discussion of that in the book, but like very, very brief. I think a lot of a lot of readers, particularly um, engineers, like you know, don't feel like they they understand something until they dive into the weeds. And so like Mm -hmm. with elliptic curve groups, like you really can largely black box them um, and understand like just a, you know, hand like a paragraph or two. Um, And like basically that like a curve element is like two finite field elements and um, like that, you know, the base field and the scalar field are different things. And like literally that's about it. And that's what I try to put in the book but I think people you know might feel more comfortable with a more in depth analysis of that, and then finite fields you do really need to be comfortable with at least like you know what what is like addition and multiplication modulo a prime right um and so for elliptic curve groups, there is a, a kind of a, a couple blog posts that I think are really great. Um, there's like a gentle introduction and like an overview of um, BLS-12381, which is a pairing-friendly curve that's very popular today. And for for fields, um, there's like a really nice book, which it, kind of in the spirit of, of mine, is just kind of been online forever <laughs> uh, by uh, Dan Bonet and Victor Shoup, and it has a nice appendix on finite fields. So that's what I started, the, the combination of um You know, those three sources and they're nicely all online is what I started pointing people to.
0: Yeah, Fantastic. Um, I will for sure get these from you and put them in our show notes um, and maybe we can even pin them in the group or something so that people can easily find that. So I want to hear, given the work you've been now doing in this space for many years, what's exciting? Like, do you focus primarily on still the deep research or are there use cases, maybe at a higher level that are starting to emerge that get you really excited?
2: There is a lot of room for major performance progress still, even after all these years of, um, you know, significant effort devoted to it. Now, I have, a, I have a funny view. I think this goes back to the Twitter discussion recently of different perspectives um, based on projects using recursive composition very heavily versus maybe my own, um, where I have not focused on recursive composition in, in my own work. As a historical viewpoint on recursive composition, you know, this w- it was originally introduced almost as a way to take like a crappy snark and make it less crappy. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like if a, if the <laughs> runtime of the prover is you know super linear in the size of the circuit, you now you don't want to apply it to a giant circuit right because um, you know the cost for the prover just kind of get worse and worse and worse in a sense um, compared to just like evaluating the circuit. so the idea is you break the computation down into like tiny circuits um, and and just apply the the snark to each tiny circuit. And from that point of view, I guess it seems clear that, um, you know, there, there, there are two ways to make improvements, even if you are going to use recursion. So there's like the crappy snark, which I shouldn't call a crappy snark, but, um, you know, so there's the the base snark, um, Mm -hmm. that you are going to kind of bootstrap recursively to handle bigger circuits. And then there's like how you actually do the recursion. And so I, I think even with, with recursive composition, there's room to improve the, the base snark. There's another perspective um, entirely, which is as soon as you decide that you're going to represent a computation as a circuit or, you know, air or planck or what have you, you kind of accept it immediately like a uh, six-order magnitude, like overhead for the prover um, mm. compared to, you know, if it was just going to check the witness directly, you know, mm-hmm. with, like, no proof of correctness or something.
0: Was this the blow up that Starks experienced as well because they were using Fry?
2: No, this is not Fry-specific at all. Okay. Um, it's just—so I, I have a blog post for, through A16Z where I try to explain how I think of this, um, which I don't think is a unique, you know, viewpoint. There's sort of two sources of overhead. I call the front-end overhead and the back-end overhead. The front-end overhead is, like, um, once you decide you're going to use a circuit, uh, but forget about actually proving anything about the circuit— how much more expensive are things now? Um, like, so how how much more expensive is it to evaluate this circuit over some finite field gate by gate versus just like running a computer program to check the witness for validity? Mm. So I call that the front end overhead, and then the back end overhead is like how much more expensive is it to for the prover to prove it knows a satisfying assignment to the circuit compared to just like evaluating the circuit? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ballpark like we have kind of both um, sources of overhead down to roughly you know very roughly like three orders of magnitude but they multiply together so now you have six orders of magnitude right and and yeah like both sources of overhead like are parallelizable away so mm. you can throw tons of GPUs at this and i think this you know i hear a lot of um you know like six orders of magnitude no problem we'll just have more GPUs and they're cheap and it's fine which is a reasonable perspective but it's like very clear that like There are things people want to do where you just can't Can't do that, you know. Yeah, exactly. So um, I remain optimistic. And I've been saying this for years without ever giving anyone like really compelling examples that we will just avoid circuits um, for applications people do really care about. In the past, I've given these things people really don't care about, like counting triangles in a graph or something where I knew how to do it. Um, But uh, one thing I think is uh, like we we already know how to do this and someone just has to build it is when people evaluate neural networks today, when they train them, when they then do inference with the trained-up network, uh, largely what they're doing, I'm told, is just repeated matrix multiplication. Mm. Um, and, and, and moreover, like the you can represent the matrices over finite fields because they're really dealing with small integers and they sort of naturally get turned into field elements. So we have special-purpose snarks where you never see a circuit in them for this kind of computation. Um, so I, I think this will help to basically let like kind of the blockchain do learning, you know, learn in real time from data on chain as more and more data gets on chain. And really the learning is happening off chain and it's just getting proved uh, to the blockchain that the learning is being done correctly.
0: What do you mean there that this, you throw out the circuit? The circuit of what? Which part, if you're still dealing with some inputs, do you still have a circuit somewhere?
2: Yeah, so the, the neural network itself tends to just be like multiply some matrices, Take the resulting product matrix and, like, apply a bunch of, uh, like, what people call nonlinearities, you know, R- RELU gates or something to them. And then, like, do it again. So you just have these alternating, like, matrix multiplies, uh, RELUs, you know, repeated over and over okay. again. Um, and and we would still need to, like, handle those, like, uh, you know, RELU gates with by, like, kind of representing the RELU operation as a, as a circuit and applying, okay. you know, a general purpose SNARK to that. Uh, but with matrix multiply, what will happen is, like, the prover in its own head will just, like, mo- you know, compute the product matrix. It doesn't matter how it does it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And and then with, like, a, a low-order amount of extra work, it'll actually prove that it has, like, the correct product in its head. Um, whereas, like, the, the traditional way to do this uh, most naively would literally be to, like, represent the matrix multiply operation as a circuit. And when you apply a SNARK to that circuit the prover is proving not just that it knows the product, but that it computed it in a specific way. I see. The next step would be to apply something called Vault's algorithm, which is like um, just exploiting the fact that, um, like if I told you what the product matrix was and I actually sent that to you, um, you could actually check that it's correct faster than computing it from scratch. Mm. But if you use that in a snark, the prover would still have to cryptographically commit to this product matrix, which itself could blow away this whole goal of... Um, having kind of a low-order runtime overhead for the prover to compute the proof. Um, so with these special-purpose snarks I'm referring to, you don't even have to have the prover cryptographically commit to these product matrices.
0: Interesting. This, I guess, all falls under the category that people might be starting to hear about, which is like ZKML.
2: Yeah, so the application domain would be um, ZKML in this in this situation. Interesting. Um, yeah.
0: Is that just generally a field that you're kind of excited about?
2: It's something where I, I, you know, kind of even I, uh, as like not a particularly application focused researcher, can see the potential of Mm -hmm. and where I think um, the special purpose techniques um, can really make a dramatic difference in. And I think we'll see some more examples of this um, soon yeah which uh you know I kind of just been saying with uh with no justification for years like we should we should be tr- aiming to like get rid of the circuits completely oh. and and now I'm hoping we're we might actually achieve that um sooner rather than later yeah
0: this might be a question more for the like the episode we do looking more into that, but do you see it as the combination of these techniques? does it help like you just described the blockchain learn or does it help with the models and the use of the models? Like, is it helping both sides or is it more like we're using neural networks to like do something into the blockchain?
2: Yeah, I think it's uh, it is both. So, you know, there there's also situations where people want to, you know, a bunch of different entities want to learn from their combined data, but, you know, they're not willing to reveal their data to the other entities. And, you know, maybe they're willing to, you know, allow the output of Mm. uh, the learning process to be revealed, but not the raw data or something. Uh, so these techniques could definitely help allow that to happen. Um, the privacy part, then. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, allowing like these smart contracts to to learn from on chain data, like mm-hmm. and and forever, like more data goes on chain and they update. Uh, you know, their classifier or something, like that doesn't necessarily require any privacy. But, you know, then you can bring in privacy too. And this can help like kind of protect, let people learn from training data without revealing it to uh, the learner or something like that. Interesting. Or the other learners, yeah. Yeah. It is true, of course, that like, you know, what the training algorithm does need to know the data. Right. So someone has to know the data. Right. Anyway, unless you start using things like FHE, which is yeah. way more expensive than snarks today and stuff. But yeah. <laughs> true, true, true. Anyway.
0: <laughs> cool. So I want to hear a little bit about your most recent work. I'm so happy to hear study groups going to happen again. So people could definitely find you there if they want to learn with you. But what are you working on at the same time? And, and yeah, what sort of generally are you focused on?
2: Yeah, so I guess what one thing is is finding more of these applications um, that, uh, you, you know, you kind of, these special purpose SNARKs that don't use circuits at all uh, might be amenable for, for just kind of night and day performance improvements. Um, another thing is kind of moving again to, if you did have a circuit, but the circuit was, was really big and you weren't kind of breaking it into small pieces, I've sort of uh, been working for a while on what we call linear time SNARKs. And this basically means we allow the prover to do like Merkle hashing and field operations, but we don't consider linear time like multi-exponentiations or FFTs. And so there's been, I mentioned some of these systems before, like Breakdown, Orion. Now Hyperplank also has a part of the paper that's getting into the action. Um, and I think this is prime for um, more, more progress um, to kind of, we they already have a good prover. To, the goal now is really to get the verifier costs lower. And then I'm also interested in like actually... You know, I've I've now kind of raised this issue of like how much security is like really enough. Um, so I think it's worth actually like implementing the known attacks and seeing uh, exactly what they cost. Uh, so I can make much more precise statements than like, oh, this is how many hashes the Bitcoin network does. Oh, this is what some researcher did, you know, three years ago and mm. reported in a paper. Um, so I think that's important, like scientifically and just as as projects sort of decide where they want to be in this uh, trade off curve between security and performance. So the summary of things I'm interested in now.
0: Cool. You mentioned earlier sort of the work you had done with A16Z. Tell me a little bit about your involvement with them. What's next there?
2: Yeah. So so starting next week, I'll be joining their crypto research group uh, full time as a research partner. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. It's a it's a wonderful group of of people and, um, a wonderful collection of, of, companies to interact with just kind of be at, in the center of, of, everything, you know, especially over the summers, the, the research group has been bringing in tons of visitors. So, um, and that, that's how I started with them, um, last summer. It's just a really, uh, exciting environment. Uh, so I'm, I'm really psyched, uh, to start full-time next week.
0: Nice. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it was great to meet you and get to hear more about like the work you've been doing. It's been really fun seeing that group kind of active and you in it. But yeah, it's been great to meet.
2: Yeah, you too, Anna. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great talking to you.
0: I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, Adam, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.